Hello and welcome to the Virtual Frontier, the podcast about virtual teams created by a virtual team. I'm Chris and I'm part of the team here at FlashUp. On today's episode, we have Nikolai Ladani. Nikolai is the founder and CEO of ScaleUp. Nikolai Emanuel talked about scaling organizations systematically. So here is episode 20 of the Virtual Frontier featuring our guest, Nikolai Ladani. I'm happy to have Nikolai Ladani on our episode today of the Virtual Frontier podcast. Nikolai is the founder and CEO of ScaleUp and helps organizations to scale systematically. He brought the concept of scaling up to Germany, which was initially created by Werner Harnisch based on the Rockefeller habits. Hi, Nikolai. Introduce yourself to the audience and let us know how it came that you started working with the Rockefeller habits and how you met Werner Harnisch. Hi, Manuel. Great to be on your episode. Actually, I met Vern Harnish in 2011 um, at an event by the uh, EO Entrepreneurs Organization. And uh, he was speaking and he was uh, talking to us about his Rockefeller Habits uh, methodology. And I was extremely thrilled immediately because uh, what I loved about the methodology is that suddenly all the best practices that I had in my mind so far that I've learned right and left um, were combined cohesively in one system. So for the first time, I understood how, for example, people tools, how top grading tools related to strategic or to execution decisions. And that was actually the thing which uh, really, really motivated me to go deeper into that. Um, I then started to implement uh, the methodology in my company in those days. I had two companies. One was a consulting firm and the other one's an IT firm. And as usual, when I come back from EO events, a lot of my colleagues said, oh, no, Nikolai, not again. He's come <laughs> back from a, from, from a seminar. So that's always uh, bad news for them. And we realized that when we translate or when we try to implement the American things just one-to-one into the European context, that they lost a lot of the lightness. They lost a lot of the precision that they had in the American context. And then we started adapting the tools, translating the tools into European languages like German, French, Spanish, um, in a way that we can mirror the lightness in the core language in Amer- of the American society. And uh, that was actually one of the core factors why a lot of people who are using scaling up methodology now in Germany, France, or Italy, Spain, are quite happy because it's not a pure translation of an American book, but it's more an adaptation to our needs and the way we act and think. Mm-hmm. Makes totally sense to me because I also work with yeah, people from all around the globe and we have people from America, people from Europe in our team. and. What I realized, what was a very, very important moment for me, that the difference between accountability and responsibility is very precisely defined in English, but it isn't in German. So which other, which other difference do you see when it comes to comparison of American Rockefeller habits and German Rockefeller habits? Um, well, the difference, it's not so much about the difference in the methodology, it's more the difference in how we translate the words. Another example is, for example, um, brand promise. In the American context, 
brand promise is clearly situated or located in the environment of strategic marketing, but above all, strategy. But when you translate um, brand promise into German language, you often get uh, words like uh, Markenversprechen and things like that. The same in French, promesse de marque. And uh, suddenly you're very strongly entering the field semantically of pure communication and marketing communication. And thereby you lose a lot of the essence and the profoundness of the concept of brand promise. Because for us in the scaling up environment, brand promise is a concept how to think strategically out of the point of view of your core customer. And it's not about how to improve the wrapping of the product. That's one example. And another example that I like a lot, or that is that was very important for me, was the translation of the word um, core values. And um, when we translate the American word core values into German language, we often end up with words like Unternehmensleitbild, um, Werte, the Fr same thing in French language, we end up with words like valeur, but the German word Werte or the French word valeur always has a semantic around ethical and moral striving attitudes. So there's a very strong striving element in there. However, when we would then explain the semantics of this striving aspect on the moral and the ethical level, the American would say, hey, that's not core values, that's morale. And therefore, you can imagine that all those American management concepts that are based on core values, when you translate the word core values with the moral world, the word, they don't stick anymore. They lose their lightness. And therefore, when we use core values in the German language, we often like to refer as saying, hey, it's the verbalization of how your brain functions, of how you tick in your brain, we ticks do. Um, to make sure that it's something that is very grounded. It's not about nice words. It's more, hey, tell me, what are your convictions? Because you, as an entrepreneur, you want to make sure that I, as your employee, that I know how you think so that I can take decisions along your way of thinking when you're not around. And scaling means that you're not going to, that you're not going to be around all the time, that you're going to be away most of the time, and you want to make sure that you ensure that I take the right decisions when you're not around. And that's the thing with core values. It has nothing to do with telling me what to strive for. It's more telling me, hey, what's your DNA today, alive, right now? Mm. So those are two examples where that illustrate quite well the difference in, uh, in semantic and how different translations, even though Wikipedia or Duden would pro propose these translations as being formally right, bring us on a completely misleading track with regards to improving the scalability of your company. Yeah, it makes totally sense to me. So what you're telling is that as I, if I as an entrepreneur want to scale my organization, one very important thing is structured and systematical communication so that it's not only me as an entrepreneur who has the whole vision and even the today's vision and today's DNA in my mind, but I can also somehow um, yeah, delegate it to people that delegate it to others so that the whole organization does what 
my initial intent was. Is that what you understand from scaling? Absolutely. You know, scaling is nothing difficult. Scaling is basically easy. Scaling means that you start to verbalize every aspect of your organization because once you verbalize it, you can start to explain it to third parties so that third parties can do whatever you've told them to share and share whatever you've told them to do. And uh, the basic principle behind scaling is make yourself as a leader redundant as quick as possible. And redundant means I need to transfer all the knowledge I have into the company. And uh, the recipe book scaling up or the process in the book scaling up and also in our coachings is that our job is focused on asking all those questions to get out all the implicit knowledge out of your brains into the explicit, to help you to everything that is unconscious to render it conscious. Because once it is explicit and conscious, then you can start to verbalize and delegate it. And that's, that's it. It's not really difficult. That is, that is really, yeah, that is really valuable for myself, but I think also for our audience. So when you say scaling is easy, why do so many organizations struggle with it? Um, good question. And I think a lot of organizations struggle with it because um, we as entrepreneurs, and I'm including myself, we're often very focused on developing our product. We're often in love with our product. And we sometimes, even when our product becomes successful, we lack of seeing that at a certain point, we have to switch away with our focus from our product, moreover to the focus of creating an organization that can deliver that product. And, uh, that is a, sh a shift in paradigm that is sometimes, uh, well, that sometimes um, is overseen. And uh, scaling up is nothing else but helping you to make that shift as a leader, or at least if you realize that you're not, not the right person to do that shift, to find somebody to do that shift for you. Because um, continuing to focus on the product, on the one that is a good thing, however, what brought you here won't get you there. It means when you grow a company beyond, let's say, 20, 30 people, everything until 20, 30 people, you can guide and you can manage implicitly. You can do that on a day-to-day -day, um, level in, uh, in your corridor. But once you grow beyond 30 people, you need structures, you need processes in place. And most of us, we've never learned those processes and those structures in university or in our whatever, whatever education we made. And this is where scaling up comes into. We teach and we share exactly the tools needed so that you can handle this insanity. So you can handle all the uh, challenges that are coming once you grow beyond 20, 30, 40 people and helping you to grow to, let's say, 200, 300, 500 people. Mm. Yeah, that's what, what I realized when I transformed my organization from a local one to a virtual one because then it... It's even more important, you know, if you have a large office where everyone is in the same place every day, what I saw very often is that people have lots of ad hoc communication. 
So they meet in the kitchen, they meet in the meeting room, they have a talk meetings here, a talk meetings there, and sometimes they even scream to another employee like, hey, can you help me to fix this? And yep. um, on the other side, I saw that work can only be done with this ad hoc communication because there is no system that provides structured communication. And then people believe that work can't be done without an office. So yep. when when you help organizations to step up to to build such a structured system so that communication is done systematically, on which aspects and part of the organizations do entrepreneurs need to focus? Um, well, there, there are a couple of elements we often like to focus. A lot of our knowledge that we share with regards to the meeting rhythm comes from Patrick Lancioni. He's written a wonderful book called uh, Death by Meeting. And uh, in that book, he shares a couple of best practices and pitfalls. One of the most important pitfalls we always do in meetings is that, for example, we have agendas that sound like, uh, hey, let's talk first about um, the new price list. Secondly, let's talk about uh, strategic uh, um, procedures in uh, developing a new market. And then let's talk about vegan menu in the uh, annual meeting. So we are mixing extremely operational issues with strategic issues. And that is the core problem. Because suppose we are in that meeting. We start first talking about uh, the price list. So my mind is primed on thinking in details, thinking very process-oriented. With that primed mind, I then switch over to a strategic topic. Usually those discussions become extremely bad because I can't tackle a strategic challenge beneficially if my mind is focused on nitty-gritty processes. And in many situations, you, have, you, have, you then end up with discussions like, yeah, let's go into France. And then suddenly you say, why, Nikolai, we can't, why should we go to France? Yesterday we tried to deliver something in Munich and it didn't work out. And then I come back, what do you mean? What didn't work? What process failed? And so we end up with the more um, discussions around problems, but we can't ever face the core, uh, the, the core element. So Patrick Lancioni points out what we as entrepreneurs, as uh, businessmen, what we need is a feeling for meeting hygiene. And with meeting hygiene, he says, he means that we need to understand what kind of topics we raise in what kind of meetings. And then we need different kinds and different types of meetings for every different topic. For instance, most of the problems that people have are of bilateral nature. That means between two people. And there's waiting for something that somebody hasn't delivered. Suppose you only have weekly meetings. Then, usually, you end up with 70% of the topics that are of bilateral nature, which means, suppose we have seven people in the meeting, two people talk, and five people sleep. And afterwards, we say, hey, this wasn't really worth it. <laughs> yes, so, so true. Yeah. So Patrick points out and says, we first need something that is extremely effective in the programming environment, and that is a daily check-in, a daily huddle. In the daily huddle, we simply quickly share, hey, what's the, uh, what's the most important focus since yes, uh, what's the most important focus of today? What's the most important thing since yesterday? And where am I stuck? 
And usually where am I stuck is the point where you can raise um, concerns where you're waiting for somebody, uh, somebody's uh, things, where you are, uh, where you have a challenge with somebody. So you can always raise this bilateral thing. But since you're meeting every single day for, let's say, 5 to 12 minutes, you can solve all of those bilateral challenges on the day and on the spot. So therefore, when it comes to the weekly meeting, you finally have time to solve a certain type of, uh, of challenges. And we say, let's, uh, let's, only, let's focus in the weekly meeting only on the operational issues and don't mix operational issues with strategic issues. So the weekly meeting is there only for operational stuff, like, uh, hey, we need to look at this process. Hey, let's quickly check in how we do the sales process here. Let's have a look at our website. Let's check on uh, the price uh, uh, on the price levels. When you have strategic elements, you do that in the strategic meeting, and that is every month for let's say two or three hours. And we deliberately also reserve one hour for the uh, for the tactical or the operational weekly meeting, and at least two, two and a half, three hours for the strategic meeting, because if you want to do really strategic thinking. You need at least 10, 20 minutes until your brain gets to the right temperature, and then you can focus on that. And having this kind of meeting hygiene where you have a certain purpose for a certain meeting helps you to then have a structured um, approach to topics and solving things faster. Hmm. Does that sort of um, uh, does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just wondering how um, – so that requires – a lot of clarity it requires lots of focus not only for the entrepreneur but also for everyone in the team like i mean each of you guys in our audience everyone knows these meetings where we have a clear agenda and then people just randomly start talking about something and they even don't realize it and all of a sudden the meeting ended and we didn't get anything yeah. done how do you make sure that Everyone is really, really focused and does not get distracted without feeling personally offended. Okay. Um, so there are more there, there are two aspects you're raising. The first aspect you're raising, and that is the aspect of how do we make sure that everybody is engaged in the conversation. There are two very small hat tricks that you can apply. And uh, those hat tricks come from Google and also from, uh, um, uh, from oh, what's his name again? Uh, the million dollar coach, Bill Campbell. Mm -hmm. Bill Campbell, who was the, uh, the, the coach of, uh, uh, Jim, uh, of, uh, Steve, uh, of Jeff Bezos and also, uh, also Steve Jobs. He has two hat tricks. The first one was make sure whenever you start a meeting, that you get everybody to say something. And uh, Bill Campbell always started his meetings with the weekend report. And that is that everybody in the room had to quickly say something that he's done on the weekend. It can be something easy, nothing special. However, the reason was that if you get everybody to say something, upfront, then the probability that the person will speak up later is much higher. You have a lot of meetings where only one person starts at the beginning and the other people already check out. And that is what uh, Bill Campbell wanted to prevent. 
and it's a very effective uh, methodology, and they're using it in the Silicon Valley. Um, most of the companies who, who've been working with Beagle Campbell are using that technique, and it's very valuable. Mm-hmm. The second hat trick that we use, that comes from Google, that is making sure that everybody checks in to the meeting at the same time, checking in also mentally. And Google has been thinking about different kinds of techniques and uh, processes how to do that, and they've realized that there's one very simple technique that can really combine that everybody checks in at the same time, and that is starting the meeting with one minute of silence. And we do that, uh, we also do that, we even do that sometimes in virtual meetings, where we simply start, let's say 8.01 or 8.02, and then we start by having one minute of silence. Everybody's silent for one minute. The thing is, a lot of the times people have different paces in checking into the meeting because there are so many things going on in our mind. And I'm still sorting while you've already started a discussion. And sometimes my sorting takes 10 minutes. Uh, But in those 10 minutes, I'm not effective. So having this one minute of silence ensures that everybody has one minute to focus. What are the things in my mind? What are the things I need to do later on? Put all those ideas in the corresponding drawers. The leader of the meeting can think about what do I want to focus on? And then suddenly you have... uh, at least 200% higher effectivity in that meeting. Wow. Those are the, it's a small help. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, that sounds already very systematically in the beginning. So, yeah, when people start a meeting and they focus on first understanding what is in my mind and uh, put all these things aside that don't matter right now, I will try that. I will definitely try that. Thanks for this, for this hint. Hey everyone, Chris here again. We'll get back to our conversation with Nikolai Ladani in just a minute. I just wanted to give a quick thank you and shout out to Time91 for their review of our show on Apple Podcasts. Here's some of what they said. Really refreshing and innovative. Talking about virtual teams is always interesting. So thanks again for that review, Time91. Time had a lot more to say, but you know I don't want to spend too much time on that for you. You can just go check it out yourself when you're leaving a review for us. We really, really appreciate everyone like Ty91 that goes and leaves a review. Reviews like that really help people find our show. So if you like what you're hearing, please head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You just might be featured right here in this spot on a future episode. Now back to our conversation with Nikolai Ladani. What I'm wondering is how does um, the methodology of OKRs help with scaling it helps every well okrs is nothing difficult and uh, nothing special and i think we have to understand okrs in the context of the modern world and the context of verbalizing priorities i would say that there's no difference between okrs setting priorities or rocks The only difference is that OKRs is a much more elaborate way how to communicate priorities for a quarter. Um, End of the 90s or in the 80s, when we had 2 to 5% uh, growth in companies and people were happy with 2 to 5% growth, it was okay to set a topic as a priority. 
um, in the years of 2000, 2005, and 10, we realized that we need to be more precise when setting and describing uh, a topic. And then we started to come with this uh, um, rule that topics need to be smart, specific, measurable, actionable, termable, and these things. But in today's world, where we have so much agility going on, even smart doesn't help us anymore because it sort of narrows our mind. And this is where OKRs come into game because the OKR switches its focus away from understanding and helping the, to, the people to tell uh, – well, it goes away from us as managers telling the people what to do more to helping us to explain what is the outcome that we desire and how to measure that outcome instead of telling the people what to focus on. Because sometimes if I tell somebody to, what to focus on, that person or that explanation also implies that I need to be knowledgeable in how to solve the problem. And that is often not the case nowadays. And OKRs has to be seen historically or let's say systematically in that development of time. So OKRs is a wonderful way how to help organizations to understand what are the core elements that need to get done in this quarter. Uh -huh. In the scaling up environment, we are absolutely using OKRs as well with, with regards to when we, when we draw down, when we come to, um, trying, to, uh, to, try to trying to define what are the priorities for a quarter, we always use OKRs to do that in, afterwards uh -huh. with regards to bringing them into the, uh, into the organization. So I'm very familiar with that. I'm, I love them. I, we use them all the time. <laughs> I think it's not so very common here in, in Germany or in Europe, but we, we started introducing it um, at the end of last year. And personally, I realized it gives me so much focus. It really helps me to check in every morning and identify what is the most important thing that I need to get done today. Before we had OKRs, I was scrolling my email box. I was scrolling in Slack. I was checking here, checking there. Everything was And there were so many things more and more every day. And the person that screamed loudest was the one I, that I served first. And with yeah. OKRs, I can really shut up all this noise and make, make much more clarity in my mind about what is the most important thing that I need to accomplish. And then what do I need to do today to get one step closer to this goal? Yeah. How would you help organizations to understand for themselves, that they would benefit from such a structured approach? You know, which um, problems do they face every day so that they, that they really need to see, okay, I need like OKRs or structured communication, structured meetings. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me add one thing to the, to the aspect of OKRs because it, OKRs is like a fashion at the moment. Everybody thinks that OKRs is the solution to everything. And uh, I think a lot of companies underestimate how much time you need to implement OKRs because OKRs also means you have a complete different way of thinking. We're all primed in thinking milestone-orientedly. In OKRs, you don't think milestone-orientedly anymore. You switch to thinking only outcome-oriented, and that's a long process for a lot of people. And even in America, when you implement OKRs, um, it takes the companies at least nine to 12 months until they work. 
That's been a study that has been made by John Deere, who's written the book um, Measure What Matters, uh, who's one of the grandmasters of, uh, of OKRs. Even he says in America it takes 9 to 12 months. So imagine even if it takes in America 9 to 12 months, it's not surprisingly that sometimes in Europe it also takes much longer than we think. And we have some organizations that have moved away from OKRs that have, uh, that have moved back to having clear goals, like smart formulated goals for, for a quarter, and having the milestones they check in every, uh, every week on, uh, that are corresponding to each goal. So the element is more, do we have a process in our management team, let's say six to five, uh, five to eight people, where we together decide what are the things we're going to do in this quarter and what are the things we're not going to do? Because we all have too many things to do. And the core question is rather to decide what are we not going to do? Once we decide what we're not going to do, and once we decide what we know what to do, and what, what, that we have to decide together what to do, then obviously we need a meeting rhythm to ensure that we're on track. Because if we don't have a, a proper meeting rhythm, like weekly check-ins, where we together see and check whether we have made progress with regards to the core elements we've decided to do, we often lose track. And we all know that from the old times, if we never check in on something, then usually it drops off from our t uh, our desk and some other people, uh, some other things sneak in. Yeah. So it's just like you said, yeah. Yeah, I just want to want to put stress on that. That's absolutely the case. So whenever you try, whenever you don't have a clear rhythm where people are kept accountable and where people need to report about the status, it's not that they have to report, it's even more that they need to be aware of the current status and their progress. Um, yeah. Now let's say a company does this pretty well and they grow and scale and scale. So most people, they said growing equal to scaling. Um, and previously you said there are, there is a book death by meeting. <laughs> I was almost laughing about this. There is also a term which says you can scale to death. What do I need to monitor that I don't scale to death? Mm. For us, we like to say that scaling is more an attitude and an inner attitude how you look at your company. And um, scaling for us means the attitude that when you look at your company, that you look at it from a perspective that you want to make yourself redundant as soon as possible and create an organism that can run without you. Because scaling means that you want to liberate yourself to do other things while the core continues to run without you. You can either continue to grow your company or you can do something else. Um, scaling to death for me is not really a concept that, that has that has come across my way of thinking and um, i think if companies scale to death it has nothing to do with scaling it has more to do with a lack of leadership because a company that scales to death is more a company where the leader 
once more than his uh, than the company that he has created can deliver mm-hmm. so it's more about the challenge of the leader and not the the the, uh, the, the attitude towards scaling for mm-hmm. me scaling is wonderful and <laughs> growth is wonderful and yeah. um, for us we also like to point out that growth is not only quantitatively it's not about getting bigger richer and so forth it's more a mindset and i like to provoke by saying we are growth maniacs because in a vuca environment in an environment that is characterized by vulnerability uncertainty complexity and ambiguity if we live in an environment that is characterized by disruption having a mindset where you say i don't want to grow is the biggest invitation to failure because i'm starting not to look into my environment anymore i'm, I'm becoming lazy and observing the market however if i maintain a growth mindset if i maintain a mindset where i say i want to reach something bigger and higher whatever it is it may be quantitative and qualitatively it ensures that i'm staying alert and we've seen in the years of 2010 2012 we had a phase where a lot of companies were switching to no growth or zero growth um a lot of those companies either have disappeared or they have adapted their methodologies because no growth or zero growth doesn't really work because it makes our brain go lazy and we can't see disruptions anymore we fail to watch the market and therefore we say if markets are very agile if markets are disruptive the best insurance to reach the future is to have this growth mindset to have a hairy and a big audacious goal and follow that mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah that makes absolute sense um i mean i realized that like four years ago three years ago when my company was running smoothly and i always managed to get out of the operational business projects were running and then i i really became a little bit lazy <laughs> that yeah really really matches my my mindset at this time i was enjoying everything that it runs smoothly without me but i had no monitoring system in place that alerts me when i need to wake up and yeah. that uh, yeah that was the start of of a crash that i shared in my tedx talk but um can you give some yeah. people things to their hands like a very easy to use system or so what do they need to monitor what do they need to make sure they they monitor every week or every month so that this happens does not happen to them what do you mean by this you mean a failure this, or such a crash such a huge failure such of uh, being getting lazy and yeah and not seeing that things are moving in the wrong direction um well <laughs> i think the best the best advice i can give is have a coach have somebody that can see you from the outside that can help you to uh, where you have somebody where you have to be accountable yourself and um, i think 
from my own experience, I've been in situations where I started um, a couple of years where, where I grew a company quite swiftly from zero to more than 40 people. And then I suddenly was so in a struggle of continuing to grow the company and we had difficult times that I was absolutely not open anymore to outside advice. And I was running for the sake of running and because I wanted to prove to myself that I can make it. And um, I was quite happy because I'm a part of, I'm a member of EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. And in EO, we regularly meet and I meet with my fellow entrepreneurs and a couple of them were able to see to what extent I was absolutely running into the wrong direction. And they were also able to see that I had difficulties hearing and listening to others. And it was them who helped me to see and get back into the helicopter, see my situation from the outside and really find the proper decisions. So I think getting an outside person whom you trust, with whom you can share your own information is extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. Can you share some insights uh, with our audience and myself what happened to you? Um, basically, it was quite funny because uh, so in 2011, I've, I met Vern Harnish and uh, I started uh, implementing the things. We realized that uh, we needed to, to adapt a lot of things for the European context, for the German context. And I, uh, um, I translated and uh, wrote my first book. That was the German version of the Rockefeller Habits, where I'm the co-author because I added uh, an entire chapter with regards to adapting the things to Europe. And uh, I published that book, and afterwards I thought, hey, I'm now the genius of um, strategy because I just wrote a book with Vern. And uh, when I started my company in those days, the IT company, I thought I could ignore a lot of the principles that we're preaching. Because of, obviously it's tedious to do these meeting rhythms. It's tedious to start and to focus uh, before a meeting. It's all those habits that you do it's not really something that i like as an entrepreneur or that, that many entrepreneurs are passionate about and um i would say i made three very very distinctive mistakes the first one was that um when creating the founders team we were strongly focusing on the skills of the founders And we had a great combination of wonderful skills amongst the founders, amongst the founders' teams. But we didn't pay attention at all whether we share the same convictions with, regard, with regards to our thinking. Um, we didn't share the core values. And uh, since we didn't share the same core values, we hardly ever managed to find a common ground with regards to attitudes, how we comport within the company or towards the uh, towards our clients for example um, one of my co-founders his conviction is the glass is always half empty my conviction is the glass is always half full and uh, we got a prize by the deutsche telekom and we were about and we had deutsche telekom as one of our clients so i was really happy and i came back to the company telling him hey We have wonderful success. And his first response was, yeah, but mind you, we're going to fail sooner or later because uh, you can't ever rely on those big corporates. 
And immediately <laughs> wow. for me, it was like a cold shower. Mm-hmm. And then I was coming, telling him, hey, no, no, it's really going to be great. And after some time, I realized that for him, people who see the glass to be half full are people from out of his perspective who are not strong, who are naive, and who don't have the balls to do good things. And I knew that. And in the end, I used at least 70% of my time and my energy to hold the relationship with my co-founder, and it only left me 30% of my energy to invest into the company. And I never realized to what extent I was always compromising in order to keep that relationship. Can you relate to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's like you are looking in two different directions all the time, right? Absolutely. And we are seeing so many teams where the founders are focusing on, yeah, those guys, they have great skills. And they never realize that skills is not important. What is more important is, am I able to create an atmosphere where I can create my, where I can develop my own creativity and where we can help each other to grow bigger swiftly. And that has nothing to do with the skill set. That is second. That's Um, more a mindset, right? Absolutely, yeah. The second challenge that we faced was a challenge very closely linked to being in love with our own product. We created a fabulous technology where we were able to send out PDF documents into uh, apps where every person had his own app and we were able to, uh, to time bomb and to also geofence that document. So we were able to distribute documents without losing control over the documents. And that was quite a, a fancy thing in those days. It's, uh, it was uh, used for distributing sales manuals. So if a person leaves your company, you can retreat the, uh, the sales manuals. And uh, obviously, it was quite difficult to find good uh, uh, customers. We had a couple of customers. But um, then, I will never forget that situation. We were, we were doing strategic thinking, and we thought, hey, our technology is so cool that we are actually wonderful for all segments. We're actually good for many, many, many industries. Actually, everybody could use us. So we, we identified ourselves as being a ground technology. And we thought then the most effective way to grow was to find system architects and other um, other companies to do the last mile based on our technology. And um, we were trying to grow through system integrators. And uh, what we didn't realize is that we delegated the entire market approach to others. We were alienating ourselves from the core markets, and we were focusing more and more on us being in love with our technology. And, uh, well, and that's always not so good, as you can imagine. (laughs) I can definitely imagine that. Yeah, that's very valuable because I had this experience uh, in one of my startups like eight years ago. I was only focusing on the product. I built something that I loved, and then I tried to distribute it by some partners but i never got in touch with the real market and i never understood what the market really needs i just understood that i've built a product that i really love <laughs> and i yes. was the only customer so yeah that's, Indeed. <laughs> that's a big Absolutely. failure thanks for sharing that that's very important for yeah especially startups that are listening to this podcast 
So uh, we already came to the end of this episode. Let us know where people can find more information or where they can reach out to you. Um, obviously, you can always uh, uh, check out our internet site, www.scaleup.de. And uh, I'd love to uh, invite everybody to uh, come to the Scale Up Summit in October. Um, it's going to be in uh, Düsseldorf. It's going to be on, on October 27th and 28th. You will be able to experience Vern Harnish live on stage, and you're going to experience... Uh, um, another uh, another couple of wonderful speakers and uh, people like Philip Dipteview will be also there talking about their own experience with digitalization scaling and uh, it's uh, going to be a wonderful two-day event or one-and-a-half-day event where you have access not only to great speakers but also to great breakout sessions where you all uh, you will have the opportunity to also uh, actually work on your company so 27th, 28th of uh, uh, October. That's going to be a, a wonderful opportunity for the entire European scaling crowd together. And um, I'm very, very happy to answer all kinds of emails that you send to me. So if you have a question, just drop me an email and I'm happy to answer. Perfect. Thank you very much. That was a very valuable episode. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And uh, thanks for you, for Emmanuel, for doing this i am very i was extremely thrilled when i saw your ted talk the first time and uh, yeah i'm very happy to be part of your movement yeah thank, thank you. you very much i need definitely more of these open-minded people because this will help to really transform the way how the world is working so thanks for being part of it thank you bye-bye i'd like to thank our guest nikolai ladani for joining us today you can find out more about Nikolai and ScaleUp at scaleup.de. You can subscribe to the Virtual Frontier on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Reviews help people find our podcast. And don't forget your review could be featured on a future episode just like Time 91 was earlier. If you want to learn more about Virtual Teams as a service, visit flashhub.io. On behalf of the team here at FlashHub, I'd like to thank you for listening. So until next episode, keep exploring new frontiers.